Welcome to Reading Marx's Grinrisse with David Harvey. This course was recorded at the People's Forum in New York City in 2020. David Harvey is a distinguished professor at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. The page numbers Professor Harvey refers to are valid for the Penguin Classics edition. Course materials are available at peoplesforum.org slash This episode is Class 6, pages 423 through 515. Okay, so um, up until now, we've been working very much with Marx's text uh, in a uh, sort of step-by-step. And a large part of the text after we got through the money was really dealing with the concept of capital, in which uh, Marx really depicts uh, capital and labor locked in a kind of almost mortal embrace between each trying to realize itself in the other, the struggle between them. But that struggle largely occurs uh, at the point of uh, production. And I've got a version of the, the diagram I like to use, which is, uh, which is this one. And you're familiar with it now, and I'm always going back to it. But in effect, what, we've been, what we did up until very recently was to sort of be talking about relations in, in production. But then we moved to Marx kind of saying, okay, well, what's the positionality of labor in relationship to this whole process of circulation? And in particular, he's looking at uh, the concept of realization. Now, Marx uses the, the term realization in uh, fairly general ways. And at certain points, he will talk about realization in production, uh, which is different, of course, because what you, what's happening there is that capital is transforming commodities in the act of production and therefore realizing value. Uh, production and surplus value production at that point of production. But then uh, the commodity is taken into the market and sold, and there's another notion of realization, which is the realization of value through the exchange in the market. So uh, that is the second red box. And in effect, what we're looking at, uh, or what we have been looking at in the last week or two, is the relationship between realization in production and realization uh, in the market. Now, when I, when I use the term realization from now on, it's always going to be about realization in the market. And I'll talk about production and then I'll talk about realization uh, of value through market exchange. And one of the things uh, that Marx did in the very last session we had was to talk about the positionality of the laborer in relationship to all of this. Now, what happens in effect is that uh, the laborer who is in, uh, being engaged in production uh, receives, uh, after the money has been realized through the sale of the market, receives a portion of the money in the form of wages. And what we find here is that this then is distributed. And so we have a line here that goes through distribution and it comes to the point of wages. And then wages comes back up uh, as part of the demand. So. Uh, what we have is uh, uh, workers' consumer demand, which then feeds back into here and buys the wage goods, which are here, which are over here, and then the, and then those wage goods are brought into the production process in the household, 
and that reproduces uh, the laborer who can come back into production. So there's a circulation process here, which goes from uh, production through the realization of value, the distribution of that part of the value due to wages, wages to form effective demand, come back to buy the wage goods, which keep the laborer alive and bring the good back. So there's a circular price process of, of this kind. And Marx points out that while the analysis of the re relationship between capital and labor at the point of production uh, is classic kind of uh, class uh, configuration and class struggle, uh, we ask the question, what happens at this point where uh, the worker goes into the market and seeks to buy the wage goods? In other words, it was coming back in, in this direction. And the answer there, Marx kind of says, at that point, the, the worker is no longer a worker. The, 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 the worker is, in fact, acting as a buyer. And as a buyer, faced, therefore, with the practices of the sellers. And if the sellers are cheating, and if the sellers are monopolists, and if the sellers uh, are engaging in all kinds of uh, nefarious practices, uh, those capitalists who are in the act of selling uh, will actually uh, steal some of the, uh, of the wages, which are the hard-earned wages of the worker. So Marx then kind of says, so we have to look at this moment as a moment where it's a relation between buyers and sellers. And of course, it's not only workers who are involved in buying and selling, uh, it's also everybody else. And so the, the class configuration starts to look rather different when we get to this particular point. And Marx insists in the Grundrisse at several points that the character of the worker changes as you move from this positionality of production to this positionality at the point of realization. So Marx is then is talking about realization in the market, and this is the last part he was getting into on page 421. Uh, and, and he then elaborates a little bit further about uh, this whole kind of relationship between the way in which the worker uh, is uh, forced to provide, to provide surplus labor in order to gain necessary labor. You shouldn't think of it that, okay, there's necessary labor and then, on, in addition, surplus labor. For the worker, it's the other way around. They will only get necessary labor and therefore get enough money to, to, to live uh, if they provide surplus uh, value. So surplus value, in a sense, comes before uh, the necessary labor, and uh, this is part of the argument that Marx is making uh, on 421, 422. Now, this then takes us into... Um, a, a general discussion on the relationship between production and realization, that is production uh, and realization in the market. And that is a very kind of complicated kind of question and Marx is going to make it, uh, I think, as plain as he possibly can without uh, neglecting all kinds of nooks and crannies of the argument, which by now you're familiar with, uh, he loves to, to explore. So on 4.23, he begins on the, uh, the further kind of, kind, of, kind of analysis. And in particular, uh, he's interested in this question of uh, the possibility uh, that as the commodities are taken in for realization, that there may not be a market for it. And if there's no market for it, then you'll get a devaluation of the commodities 
uh, and therefore we have to consider very seriously the possibility that as you move from production into the realization in the market, uh, you may find yourself with a surplus of commodities which can't be sold. In other words, is there the possibility of overproduction? And this is a big argument because a whole wing of uh, economic thinking uh, says that effectively that there is no possibility of uh, overproduction, and this is something called Say's Law. And uh, many people adhere to it and in effect, in effect say it is impossible for there to be general overproduction. There can be the overproduction of a particular commodity. You can uh, overproduce uh, the cabbages or you can overproduce automobiles or something of that kind. So it's possible to have overproduction in a particular sector, but general overproduction where, where it seems that everything is uh, unable to be sold is, according to the, the economists and according to Say's law, is an impossibility. Uh, and so Marx uh, is going to challenge uh, Say's law and everybody, everybody who has anything to do with it. And of course, one of the people he gets into here is uh, uh, Proudhon. And as I've argued I'm, uh, or, or indicated to you at the very beginning, I really don't have a stomach to go through every single argument that Marx had with Proudhon. If you want to do it, that's fine, uh, but I'm not going to do it. But he has a wonderful little thing where he kind of says, uh, Proudhon addressing the question of possibility of overproduction. He says, Proudhon, who certainly hears the bells ringing but never knows where. So this is a sort of a real put down, uh, of course, but you know, I kind of enjoy when Marx does those kinds of things. Uh, so. Uh, so then what follows is a whole set of discussions of particularities of what Proudhon said, and I'm inclined to skip all of that for the reasons I've mentioned. So I'll move from 423 uh, up, uh, way up to 434. And something happens on 434, which I think is just, just an interesting idea. This is... Uh, uh, one of the things I like to do in the Grundrisse is you find a little passage which, which encapsulates something which far more than I think what Marx intended, but it seems very useful to dwell upon it. Uh, and uh, on 434 at the top, Marx is here actually talking about the kind of uh, probabilities of overproduction and surpluses and surplus commodities and in Rome and, and, and the imperial... Uh, uh, regimes and all the rest of it. And he says, well, in situations of that kind, you find it, the, the, the issue is not overproduction, he says. He says, but it's overconsumption. And then he talks about insane consumption, signifying by its turn towards the monstrous and the bizarre, the downfall of the old system of states. I like that idea. And I think it has certain application. I mean, I look at Hudson Yards and I think to myself, that's insane consumption. And we have insane consumption going on around us all the time. And in exactly the same way Marx is saying overconsumption and insane consumption signified the collapse of the old system of, uh, of, of state. So I think that the whole kind of question of overconsumption and insane consumption, and the monstrous and the bizarre forms of consumption is the way in which we can actually start to think about the potential downfall of a capitalist mode of production. 
And I think that uh, right now with the uh, uh, COVID-19 uh, virus problem, what we're seeing is a curbing of consumption, uh, particularly uh, sort of insane and monstrous uh, tourist, uh, uh, bizarre uh, activities. Uh, and, and so that maybe this kind of little idea of overconsumption and insane consumption is a sort of nice idea to sort of put out there and say, to what degree uh, is the urbanization you see in the Gulf states an example of, uh, of exactly what we're talking about? And does this uh, portend uh, some very serious uh, problems in the way in which capital works? And some of the, um, um, and what those problems might be uh, begin to be taken up on the next page, which is 435, uh, where Marx says, well, if uh, you get into a situation uh, in which there's the surplus, uh, you know, surplus goods in the market and there's no, there's no market, and then you'll find yourself having to sell off the goods below their value. And if you do that, then, of course, the, your profit goes down and you'll end up with sectors uh, where there's also zero profit because there's been overproduction of uh, know, cabbages or autos or whatever. What, 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 whatever. Um, so he talks a little bit about that on 435, but then kind of says, but this doesn't necessarily mean that the rate of profit in general falls. But here he, he, he immediately takes up uh, the idea of the falling rate of profit. Now, as you probably know, falling rate of profit is one of the big issues that Marx discusses at length and in depth in volume three of Capital. But it's interesting that in 1858, he already had in his mind that this was something that he needed to look at very carefully. And what he says about it is, uh, the general rate of profit cannot fall simply because you're overproducing a particular commodity in a particular field of endeavor. Uh, it, will, it can fall only if the proportion of surplus labor to necessary labor falls relatively. And this, as we saw earlier, takes place if the proportion is already very large or expressed differently if the proportion of living labor set into motion by capital is very small. That is, if there are labor-saving innovations which are coming in, they're taking labor out of production, if labor is the source of value and surplus value, then you're going to get a general rate of profit which is going to be due to technological changes. And Marx then kind of says the general rate of profit can fall in that case even though absolute surplus labor rises uh, so that uh, you can increase the length of the working day and increase the rate of exploitation of labor. But if you're removing labor from production through technological advances, uh, then you always threaten that you're going to get less value and less surplus value. And if that happens, then that means there's likely to be a general fall in rate of profit due to mechanisms, which Marx has not dealt with at this point. But it's interesting he inserts that here. And furthermore, at the bottom of 435, he inserts something else, which is very vital in volume three of capital, when he says the capitalist class thus to a certain extent distributes the total surplus value so that to a certain degree, it shares in it evenly in accordance with the size of its capital instead of in accordance with the surplus values actually created by the capital in the various branches of business. Now, in volume three of capital, you find out what that means. What that means is that when there's an equalization of the rate of profit, 
you end up with a situation in which uh, those people who are engaging in labor intensive forms of production are producing a lot of value but receiving very little of it compared to those lines of uh, production which are uh, actually producing very little uh, value but which advance a, a lot of capital. Um, and Marx, interestingly at the time, talks to this as sort of a form of capitalist communism because what it, what it says in effect that the rules of distribution, which is a field of endeavor we're not going to get into here, but in the laws of distribution, what we find is that it is the, the surplus value is produced according to the capital, to the labor that's employed, uh, but it's distributed according to the capital advanced. Uh, so it, in, in effect, it's uh, a sort of capitalist communism because it's from each capitalist according to the labor they employ to each capitalist according to the capital they advance. So the capital who advances, the capitalist who advances a lot of capital, uh, in effect, gets a transfer of value uh, from uh, those sectors of the economy which are producing uh, a lot of, uh, uh, of value through labor employment. So Marx is signaling these things uh, as uh, being involved in it, but then there's nothing, we keep on with the kind of the buyer-seller stuff and Proudhon and all the rest of it uh, for some considerable time in the text. So I want to jump now to 443 and 444, where some significant issues are, are, are brought up. Um, he says on 443, he introduces it, he says, at a given point in the development of the productive forces, that is, uh, technological change, this will determine the relation of necessary labor to surplus labor. A fixed relation becomes established in which the product is divided into one part, corresponding to raw materials, machinery, etc. And finally, surplus labor divides into one part, which goes to consumption, and another, which becomes capital gain. Capital gain. Um, he's arriving here at the concepts in capital of constant capital and variable capital. Constant capital is all of the, all of the investment that the capitalist puts into the purchase of means of production. Uh, that is raw materials, uh, uh, machinery, uh, energy, or everything. Uh, so that's the constant capital. The variable capital is that which is going to go to producing uh, the necessary labor time, which is going to give the, the, the worker the capacity to buy commodities and reproduce themselves, and then the surplus value becomes the capital. Uh, so it, we get this division between constant capital, variable capital, and surplus capital. Uh, and Marx is setting this up at uh, this particular point, and then points out uh, that this internalizes certain contradictions and internalizes the construction of certain barriers to future accumulation. He says uh, on page 444, the barrier always remains. That exchange, hence production as well, takes place in such a way that the relation of surplus labor to necessary labor remains the same. 
for this is equal to the constancy of the realization of capital. The second relation, the proportion between the part of the surplus product consumed by capital and that part transformed anew into capital is determined by the first relation. That is, you have to think about what does the capitalist do with the surplus value? Uh, and that, you know, we know what the, labor, what the laborer does with uh, uh, the wage. Uh, now we ask the question, what is this going to do with the surplus value? What does the capitalist do with the surplus value? And part of it is going to go, of course, uh, to uh, reinvestment and, and then the reinvestment uh, is by taking the, going around that circuit and coming back in to the money capital which comes into production uh, again. So this is, this is the argument uh, here, and the, the ultimate point, of course, is where the surplus value converted back into money flows back and comes back into the money point of the circulation. And on 447 he says, capital is thus now posited as money again, and money therefore posited in the new aspect of realized capital. So there's a difference between just taking money and using it, and then using the surplus value as more capital. Because then what you've got is the, the, the closure of the circuit. Uh, initially, Marx argues that it, what it looks like is that the capitalist arises into a flat field and takes things from here, there, and everywhere and brings them into production. What Marx is arguing for now is you've got to look at how this system becomes self-sustaining and self-enclosed. So the fact that the capitalist has produced surplus value means that the surplus value creates the money when it's converted into the money form, comes back and forms the money capital which comes back into production. That is what closes the circle. And I think Marx is very uh, saying, well, this, this is the point at which capital is realized because you've produced capital through producing surplus value. Now the capital is coming back to produce more capital. And that is the point where the endless accumulation process uh, starts to take over. Um, so the circulation, so the circulation process then, uh, this whole kind of circulation process he's looking at is rendered uh, fairly, fairly complete. Um, so uh, as he says this on, four, on 450, that, that, that we can clarify what's going on here, uh, that in effect what's happening is that money is in transition, this is the bottom of the two-thirds down, 450. Money is in transition from its role as value to its role as capital. Now they are solved through the process of realization and production itself. That is, the unity of production and realization lies at the heart of actually turning around this whole kind of process and bringing it back in and circulating it uh, on a continuous basis. And, and in effect, what happens, as he says at the bottom of this paragraph, these external presuppositions, that is money that was outside, means of production that were outside, these external uh, presuppositions will now appear as moments of the motion of capital itself. So that it has itself, regardless how they may arise historically, pre-posited them as its own moments. That is, uh, the moments have now complete. You are you're going through the moments and you're producing the capital, you're producing the commodities, 
uh, you're producing things and you're just keeping the whole circulation process uh, going and it, you're no longer picking up things from outside, you're generating capital on the inside and that capital is generated on the inside, is then generating commodities uh, which are then realized. And so it's the, it's, it's the, the perpetuation of the, the circuit, the construction of the totality. In other words, going back into the, uh, the, the, the diagram, uh, the diagram is about the production of the totality. And this is the final totality that Marx is talking about, its process of production. And we started off by talking about this as something which was utilizing external uh, possibilities, uh, external materials and all the rest of it, but now we're internalizing it. So this system becomes self-sustaining uh, and, and operating. And I think this is a very important uh, point to make, uh, that uh, capital, once it becomes self-sustaining and systemic, uh, that is what is going to produce the problem of endless accumulation, endless uh, uh, circulation, uh, and to push us into uh, the, the spiral form. Now, so this is um, uh, what, what goes on, but there is always this problem of uh, the barrier that may exist in the realization in the market. That is, uh, is there a possibility that something can be blocked here because there's not a market for it? There's not a want, need, or desire, or there's not enough uh, money available. So there's a blockage at this particular point. So Marx is not going to argue that just because you produced value here, that you necessarily are able to realize it. And so it's this complicated relationship between production and realization that lies at the heart of Marx is theorizing at this particular point. But this uh, is depicted here as final consumption. So this is the form of effective demand that arises out of final, out of final consumption. But there is another form of effective demand which comes from capital itself. That is the effective demand, and this is down here, that is effective demand uh, or what Marx calls productive consumption. So there's final consumption, which is operating up here, productive consumption down here, which is where uh, the capitalists uh, are actually investing. And they, when they invest, they buy materials and they buy commodities uh, in order to invest. And so they are also a source of demand. Uh, and this distinction between final consumption and productive consumption is very important. If you have a difficulty of uh, final consumption, then one of the way of things you can do is you just go uh, to uh, the uh, uh, productive consumption. Uh, in effect, this is what, uh, what China was faced with in 2007-2008. Final consumption of its uh, commodities was collapsing in the United States. Uh, it couldn't substitute its own final consumption. It wasn't strong enough or big enough to do that. So what they did was they effectively absorbed their, their surplus productive capacity in productive consumption. That is, they built infrastructures. They built uh, highways, they built uh, rail networks, they built dams, they built uh, all kinds of infrastructures. Uh, they urbanized like crazy. 
And, and that actually absorbed uh, a lot of the realization. So if you've got a realization crisis of final consumption, you can often actually get by it by investment in, uh, in productive consumption, which is, uh, was one of the proposals, which was around in 2008, even in the United States, because uh, what Obama wanted to do and what these economists wanted to do was to revive the economy uh, by uh, borrowing a lot of money and, and building infrastructures or rebuilding infrastructures. Uh, and that would have uh, helped uh, generate uh, sort of incomes and, and, and revival of uh, the economy. So realization is not simply about final consumption. It's also about the balance between final consumption, productive consumption. And if one doesn't work, then you can switch to the other. And there's been a long history of trying to get out of depressions by investments in the built environment, by investments in productive consumption as one of the ways to go, particularly if consumer confidence is in very bad shape. Uh, and we may actually be at a moment where we're going to see all these proposals uh, right now to revitalize the economy by uh, stimulus packages, which are uh, actually moving towards investments uh, in productive consumption rather than uh, trying to ride, revive uh, final consumption directly. So Marx is setting this argument up uh, and is uh, allowing for uh, the possibility of this, but at the same time, he still is gonna say that there is still the possibility that you can't realize the value. Uh, and if you can't realize the value, then there's, in the market, then there's, there's no value. Uh, and so on 446, he talks about the, uh, the possibility arises for what he calls de devaluation or the destruction of capital. Uh, and the devaluation is uh, that you've got surpluses, uh, you can't find a market for them, and, and simply the value is lost. Uh, and as he says on 446, the destruction of value and, and capital which takes place in a crisis coincides with or means the same thing as a general growth of the productive forces, which however takes place not by means of a real increase of the productive force of labor, the extent to which this happens in consequence of crisis is beside the point here, but by means of a decrease of the existing value of raw materials, machines, labor capacity and the like. And then he uses the example of the, the cotton manufacturer. So, um, the destruction of, of value and capital is something that has to be looked at uh, in, 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 this, in this section. But the, the, the main argument is that, well, everything has got internalized within this uh, historical dynamic. And this internalization uh, is very, uh, into a self-sustaining, uh, productive uh, system. Um, now, all of this means that everything gets internalized, including, uh, of course, uh, labor gets internalized within this. That is, once labor is incorporated into this whole kind of system, it's not as if they can walk away from it. They, they require, in order to live, necessary labor, they, they, and they, they have to produce surplus value in order to live. But they don't actually get the surplus value. Of course, they're producing the surplus value for capital. So 
this is this is the kind of relationship which we're which we're looking at. Um, but the the odd thing about this is, uh, and, and this is where where Marx takes off and starts to uh, talk about the way in which labor's condition is internalized within this dynamic. Uh, around 453, he starts to talk about uh, the way in which capital is produced, which is of course produced by labor. Surplus value is the grounding of the production of capital. So capital is being produced by labor. Uh, and the result is that labor is then confronted, as he says on table 453, in an alien commanding personification. That is, labor is producing the capitalist who represses them. So they're pro producing the instrument of their own uh, repression or the, or the agent of their own, own, own repression. Uh, and the, the result is, he says, that the worker emerges not only not richer from this process, but emerges rather poorer from the process than he entered. For not only has he produced the conditions of necessary labor as conditions belonging to capital, but also the value-creating possibility, the realization which lies as a possibility within him, now likewise exists as surplus value, surplus product, in a word, as capital, as master over living labor capacity, as value endowed with its own might and will, confronting him in his abstract objectless, purely subjective poverty. He has produced not only the alien wealth and his own poverty, but also the relation of the wealth as independent, self-sufficient wealth, relative to himself as the poverty which this wealth consumes and from which wealth thereby draws new vital spirits into itself and realizes itself anew. The reference, I think, to the animal spirits of the capitalist who, when they start to realize how much they can steal and appropriate from labor, uh, they really kind of uh, uh, thoroughly enjoy themselves. All of this, says Marx, arose from the act of exchange, in which he, the living labor, the laborer, exchanged his living labor capacity for an amount of objectified labor, that is, commodities produced by labor, except that this objectified labor, these external conditions of his being, and the independent externality of these objective conditions, now appear as posited by himself as his own product, as his own self-objectification, as well as the objectification of himself, as a power independent of himself, which moreover rules over him, rules over him through his own actions. Now, one of the things I've always kind of found interesting in Marx is the way in which, you know, we actually produce instruments of our own domination. And this is the classic case, uh, the central case about capital, that it is labor that produces the agent of their own domination. And that agent of domination impoverishes them and in, in puts them into a situation of abject poverty. And that abject poverty is something which is therefore actually produced by the person who is impoverished. So this is the kind of the cycle that Marx is looking at. Uh, and again, this is, of course, very much where the concept of alienation comes in very strongly. In surplus value, he says in 453, all moments are products of alien labor. All the moments in that totality are products of alien labor. Alien surplus labor transformed into capital. 
means of subsistence for necessary labor, the objective conditions, material and instrument, whereby necessary labor can reproduce the value exchange for it in means of subsistence. Finally, the amount of material and instrument required so that new surplus labor can realize itself in them, this is productive consumption, or a new surplus value can be created. It no longer seems here, as it still did in the first examination of the production process, as if capital for its part brought with it any value whatever from circulation. Rather, the objective conditions of labor now appear as labor's product. That is, while the capitalist came into the situation and maybe picked up all of the stuff around that was, yeah, and was actually created in doing that, what we've now got is a situation where capital is systematically organizing the system to produce the conditions of its own reproduction which are, of course, the conditions of increasing impoverishment of the labor force. So then, then it goes on to say, rather, the objective conditions of labor now appear as labor's product, both to the extent that they are value in general and as use values for production. But while capital thus appears as the product of labor, so does the product of labor likewise appear as capital, no longer as a simple product nor as an exchangeable commodity, but as capital objectified labor as mastery, command over living labor. Notice that. Objectified labor now commands over living labor. The laborer is, is, is the bearer of living labor power. They are the ones who are dominated by capital. But capital is not living labor. Capital is objectified surplus value. The product of labor, he says, appears as alien property, as a mode of existence confronting living labor, as independent, as value in its being for itself. The product of labor, objectified labor, has been endowed by living labor with a soul of its own. It's interesting, this kind of notion of the soul uh, within objectified labor, which is the alien power. And it's almost like a mysterious, uh, kind of uh, uh, process. As a consequence, he says at the end of 454, of the production process, the possibilities resting in living labor's own womb exist outside it as realities, but as realities alien to it, which form wealth in opposition to it. Labor, in a sense, is giving birth. To capital and giving birth to a monstrous beast that is going to dominate them. And he talks specifically uh, about all of the elements of this on 455 in some, some detail. It says towards the bottom of 455, it here becomes evident that labor itself progressively extends and gives an ever wider and fuller existence to the objective world of wealth as a power alien to labor. So that relative to the values created or to the real conditions of value creation, the penurious subjectivity of living labor capacity forms an ever more glaring contrast. The greater the extent to which labor objectifies itself, the greater becomes the objective world of values which stands opposite as alien, alien property. With the creation of surplus capital, 
labour places itself under the compulsion to create yet further surplus capital, etc., etc. So this is this is the argument then, which is that the realization and the objectification that comes through realization is turned into an agent which is going to effectively dominate living labor and everything that living labor gets up to, both within production, but also uh, within the totality. So 458 then, he comes to this conclusion. Finally, he says, the result of the process of production and realization, that's realization in the market, is above all, the reproduction and new production of the relation of capital and labor itself of capitalist and worker. What this whole circulation process is about is the reproduction of the class relation. This social relation, production relation, appears in fact as an even more important result of the process than its material results. This is again, I think, something that's always good with Marx. He always talks about the social relation. And when it comes to it, the material relation is always inferior of interest, less of an interest than the social relation. So all of this material circulation process that's going on has the effect of recreating and, and confirming and solidifying the class relation between capital and labor. As he says, within this process, the worker produces himself as labor capacity, as well as the capital confronting him. While at the same time, the capitalist produces himself as capital, as well as the living labor capacity confronting him. Each reproduces itself by reproducing its other, its negation. The capitalist produces labor as alien, labor produces the product as alien. The capitalist produces the worker, and the worker, the capitalist. So that's, if you like, the, the final point of this, of this argument to say this whole kind of circulation process, this is what it's really about. Now, that, if you like, is the first part of what we're dealing with, uh, with this week. But then from 459 onwards, we start to switch into a slightly different set of uh, issues. Marx wants to know, I mean, he's always making the point, right, that all of this is a historical construction. And at some point or other, he has to say something about how this original construction, how this construction came about. He's given us a theoretical argument here, which is you start with an imagination of no circulation of capital and you start to build the circulation of capital, you come around and then you get back into it and then you see the circulation. And, but that's a theoretical argument. But his theoretical argument is mirroring a historical process of some kind. And he has to ask the question, and this is where we start to get into this, this really difficult but, but interesting sort of, sort of arena, of trying to find out about the history of how this came about. So on 459, he says, 
all of what we're told, we've been talking about is based upon historic presuppositions, uh, which precisely as such historic presupposition are past and gone, and hence belong to the history of its formation. And I need to know, we need to know something about the history of, this, of its formation. And he goes on to say in 459, conditions and presuppositions of the becoming, of the arising of capital, presuppose precisely that it is not yet in being, but merely in becoming. They therefore disappear as real capital arises. Capital which itself, on the basis of its own reality, posits the condition for its realization. So he wants to talk about this and investigate this. Uh, while the process in which money or value for itself originally becomes capital presupposes on the part of the capitalist an accumulation, perhaps by means of savings garnered from products and values created by his own labor, etc., which he has undertaken as a not capitalist, i.e. while the presuppositions under which money becomes capital appear as given, external presuppositions for the arising capital. As soon as capitalists become capitalist such, it creates its own presuppositions. But I now want to go back to the situation in which it is not doing that. So he then kind of says, well, maybe what we should do is to look more carefully at that system that we're looking at to imagine what the, what the presuppositions were that allowed some of these uh, elements of the moments uh, within the totality to be, to be constructed in the way uh, they were. Uh, and, and this uh, uh, go, entails the, the, uh, a whole set of, of, of transformations. For instance, on 460, uh, he says, these presuppositions which originally appeared as conditions of its becoming and hence could not spring from its action as capital now appear as results of its own realization. Reality as posited by it, not as conditions of its arising, but as results of its presence. That is, by looking in the realities right now, maybe we can see the traces there of how this all came to be. And he uses a particular kind of example, which is a hoard, uh, a hoard of presumably of money, when he says the hoard is transformed into capital only by means of the exploitation of labor. And before the, all of this came along, people hoarded gold or they hoarded value in some, in some other form. Uh, but the hoard is transformed into capital only when that hoard is kind of brought out of activity of hoarding and starts to go into the circulation process. The bourgeois economists who regard capital as an eternal and natural, not historical, form of production, attempt at the same time to legitimize it by formulating the conditions of its becoming as the conditions of contemporary realization. And this is all about uh, uh, the attempts at apologetics uh, to make it appear as if uh, the capitalist system is entirely uh, natural and arose out of natural, uh, out of natural conditions and is therefore an, uh, a, a product of uh, nature. Uh, 
Um, and this then pushes him into an analysis uh, of uh, the existing situation to, as I said, see if you could identify the traces of some of the things that happened. Um, if we, um, if we, on uh, 461, if we initially examine the relation, such as it has become, value having become capital, and living labor confronting it as more mere use value, so that living labor appears as a mere means to realize objectified dead labor, to penetrate it with an animating soul while losing its own soul to it, and having produced as the end product alien wealth on one side, and on the other, the penury, which is living labor capacity's sole possession, then the matter is simply this, that the process itself, in and by itself, posits the real objective conditions of living labor, namely material in which to realize itself, instrument with which to realize itself, and the necessities with which to stoke the flame of living labor, capacity to protect it from being extinguished, to supply its vital processes with the necessary fuels and posit them as alien, independent existences. Or, he says, as the mode of existence of an alien person, as self-sufficient values for themselves, and hence, as values which form wealth alien to an isolated and subjective labor capacity, wealth of and for the capitalist. The objective conditions of living labor appear as separated, independent, values opposite living labor capacity as subjective being, which therefore appears to them only as a value of another kind, not as value, but different from them, as use values. Once this separation is given, the production process can only produce it anew, reproduce it and reproduce it for an expanded scale. This is what he's doing here. He's, he's saying that uh, when you take this process, which is described at length earlier, what we see is the importance of uh, something which is uh, the way in which labor, uh, living labor appears as separated, independent, uh, and, and values become opposite living labor capacity and subjective being. Um, and initially, uh, these appear as a value of another kind. Now, one of the arguments we've made, of course, is that the value theory that Marx is working with is something which is produced by capital. Yeah. What, what Marx is saying here is that once upon a time, there was a value theory that was not produced by capital, which actually engaged individual actors and individual laborers in some way or other. And this value, this value theory was the, the theory of the use value, not value as socially necessary labor time, just simply about producing useful objects, producing useful things. And this is something which preceded the formation of capital, preceded. Uh, and it, it actually was an alternative value theory. Uh, and now here it's, um, I think, uh, very uh, interesting to uh, just go back a little bit and, uh, to 461, uh, where Marx talks about this, that just as on one side, pre-bourgeois phases appear as merely historical, i.e. suspended presuppositions, 
so do the contemporary conditions of production likewise appear as engaged in suspending themselves and hence in positing the historic presuppositions for a new state of society. One of the reasons Marx is interested in the transition from feudalism to capitalism, and actually the general, the whole history of uh, the rise of capital accumulation, is that he sees clearly that the arrival of capital to its position of domination in the circulation process, to that particular point, what the arrival there created a new state of society. But by the same token, if we want to get out of that state of society, which given what he said about it, any laborer would want to do, uh, then we have to imagine a similar kind of process of transformation. Now Marx elsewhere had said, and I think this is, is important, that no society can, can build an alternative if the elements of that alternative are not already present uh, within the grasp of that existing society. And if that's the case, then the study of how one society morphed into another is going to be helpful. Uh, so the study of the rise of capital is, should, should be helpful in, in, in giving us clues as to how to get out of capital uh, into socialism or communism or, or whatever the, the alternative uh, is going to be. <clears throat> and here he's kind of saying, once upon a time, uh, there were agents producing things and labor operating with means of production and all the rest of it doing things, but they had an alternative value theory, the non-capitalist value theory, and they were, non, they were working in a non-capitalistic way. At what point and how were all of those elements creating the possibilities for capital accumulation uh, to come along? I've already indicated one of them. <coughs> for instance, the practice of hoarding. Uh, the fact that some people would, would start to hoard gold or hoard money or whatever, or hoard value in some form, <clears throat> meant that there was accumulation going on, but it was a peculiar kind of accumulation because it was not attached to the circulation of capital. Taking that accumulated capital and injecting it into the circulation process uh, would at a certain point then actually be a way in which capital accumulation could, could really begin. Um, and this is going to be an, a transformation of the value theory from uh, a pre-capitalist value theory to uh, the capitalist value theory. And exactly the same way, we should also be thinking about uh, the transition to another uh, kind of uh, value theory. And this uh, is something which, we're, again, Marx is kind of saying, once we, we dissect what is happening around us, we become very much more aware of what these possibilities might be and of what the necessity might be. And this is something he raises on 463. Uh, well, bottom of 462, <clears throat> when he talks about the way in which the product then appears as a combination of alien material, alien instrument, and alien labor as alien property, and why after production it has become poorer by the life forces expended as the laborers become poorer by the life forces expended, but otherwise begins the drudgery anew, existing as a mere subjective labor capacity, separated from the conditions of its life. This is what's happening to, to, to labor, it's becoming separated from the conditions of its life. And he then says this, the recognition 
of the products as its own. And the judgment that its separation from the conditions of its realization is improper, forcibly imposed, is an enormous advance in awareness. Recognition and awareness. And what Marx is saying here is the study we're trying to undertake here is about trying to get you to recognize and to become aware of what is actually happening to you. Uh, and this, he says, is itself the product of a mode of production resting on capital and as much the knell to its doom as with the slave's awareness that he cannot be the property of another with his consciousness of himself as a person, the existence of slavery becomes a merely artificial vegetative existence and ceases to be able to prevail as the basis of production. I think this is a very interesting passage because it's about awareness and recognition. And what Marx is trying to say is that all this complication, and yeah, I know it's complicated, but if we can get to the heart of it, and the core of it, the essence of it, if we can recognize it for what it is, and if we can become aware of it, and if we can become conscious of it, we would be in, then in a position to start to think about its transformation. And in the same way that a new state of society was set up by capital, so we can start to think about our way towards setting up uh, uh, an alternative value theory and setting up an alternative form of social order. Uh, and this, this passage to me is, is, is actually very, very important. However, he goes on to say, if we consider the original relation before the entry of money into the self-realization process, that is before this whole system got going, then various conditions appear which have to, to have arisen or been given historically for money to become capital and labor to become capital positive, that is capital creating, capital creating labor, wage labor. And then he goes on, wage labor here, in the strict economic sense in which we use it here and no other, we will later have to distinguish is capital positive, capital producing labor, i.e. living labor which produces both the objective conditions of its realization as an activity, as well as the objective moments of its being as labor capacity, and produces them as alien powers, opposite itself, as values from themselves, independent of labor. The essential conditions are, are themselves positive in the relation as it appears originally. And then he goes on to talk uh, about various uh, facets of that, what's, what's involved. It's a, a, a repeat in some ways of uh, what we've been talking about all along. Um, and uh, one of the things that's happening is, of course, a number of pre preconfigurations uh, uh, exist in the, in the rise of, of capital to domination. Uh, that, uh, and these preconditions have a lot to do uh, with uh, the formation of individuality and some of the ways in which the capital relation was prefigured. And he goes into a long discussion on 466 to 467 on questions of personal services. And and that leads into 468 into a general kind of discussion of the forms of wage labor that preceded the circulation of capital. 
wage labor was uh, was widespread, but it was always widespread because it was not being used capitalistically, it was being used against the circulation of revenues. That is, the noble lord would have retainers, uh, personal services uh, to aristocratic households and things of that kind. Uh, the, the cooks and the, you know, and the, and the aristocratic household, the, uh, the gamekeepers, uh, all of this could be wage labor, but it was not embedded in, in the circulation of capital. So wage labor was widespread uh, around. So Marx was, was talking about all of that. Uh, and uh, in bourgeois society, he, he says on 468, all exchange of personal services for revenue. And revenue is different from the circulation of capital. Revenue is you know, the incomes you have and how you, how you spend it. In bourgeois society itself, all exchange of personal services for revenue, including labor for personal consumption, cooking, sewing, etc., garden work, etc., up to and including all the unproductive classes. Interesting use of classes here, unproductive classes, civil servants, physicians, lawyers, scholars, etc., belongs under this rubric within this category. All menial servants, by means of their services, often coerced all these workers, from the least to the highest, obtained for themselves a share of the surplus product of the capitalist revenue. But it does not occur to anyone to think that by means of the exchange of his revenue for such services, i.e. through private consumption, the capitalist posits himself as capitalist. So what is happening with the capitalist uh, is that the, the, the capitalist is sort of almost a shadow capitalist and doesn't realize they're acting like a capitalist, capitalist when they start to purchase these services and use them in a certain kind of way. Um, and then Marx talks about the dissolution. There's a lot of passages about the dissolution uh, of uh, the pre-bourgeois relations and the way in which they get dissolved. And of course, uh, and, uh, the result uh, is, of course, there are free workers around, there are wage laborers around. Uh, and there, if you like, uh, um, when, 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 for example, the first capitalist took the money and decided to decide to, to, to produce like a capitalist. They went out in there and they saw a mass of wage laborers all ready to be, be, be employed and to be exploited as wage laborers and, and within the capitalist production system. So it wasn't as if capital itself had to go out and, and, and make the wage laborers because they already existed as, as wage laborers who were selling uh, their, their their talents for, for revenues. Um, so much of much of what, what ultimately happened is, is is transforming the hoard into capital, transforming wage laborers who are employed uh, against revenues and suddenly inserting them into the capital circulation process. So you can start to see how. Uh, the capitalist circulation process we've been describing arose out of a matrix of social action and social activity that had long been in existence. <clears throat> and this then takes us 471 to, uh, to 514 into a, a very interesting uh, 
uh, part of, uh, of the Grundrisse. And I'm actually not going to deal too much with it in, in, any, in any detail. Uh, but what Marx is doing here is, is actually talking about the, the pre-capitalist configurations of social orders. And the argument here is, I think, rather special in the Grundrisse. Uh, in the German ideology, Marx had come up with some sort of uh, uh, typology of, uh, you know, you, the first form of social of, of human uh, society was the kinship uh, tribal structures. A kinship uh, tribal structures gave way to uh, sorts of uh, other other political forms uh, over time, communal forms and the like, and we go from uh, communal to feudal to capital. So there's a kind of a, a almost like a, a, an evolutionary sequence, uh, but in the German ideology, it's very linear. And it always seems like it's uh, sort of a teleological kind of sequence and you can add in socialism at the end of the sequence so that you start with, with uh, tribal society, you then go to communal, you then go to money, monetized societies and use value societies and you then go, you can then go to merchant capitalists and then, you know, and the, and, and the like. But what Marx does here is actually to say, look, uh, actually there's a great variety of uh, pre-capitalist forms. So when we start to study the pre-capitalist forms, we shouldn't actually imagine that only one of them can give rise to capital. In fact, there are many different paths by which we might get uh, to a capitalist society. And by the same token, there may be many different paths by which we might get to a socialist society. So when later on uh, people wrote to him about uh, the Russian situation and said, okay, uh, we haven't really gone through uh, bourgeois industrialism, but we've got communal, peasant, uh, and property. Can we go straight to socialism without going through capitalism? Uh, you know, can we kind of short, and Marx is kind of saying, well, maybe you can. Uh, first he kind of says, I don't think so. And then he said, well, maybe you can. And of course, there's still an argument on, uh, on that uh, uh, on that form, but the, the title of the subtitle of this section is "Forms which precede capitalist production," concerning the process which precedes the formation of the capital relation over the original accumulation. Now, there are, there are a couple of ways we can think uh, about this. Uh, Marx is offering us a historical account. Um, there's discussion over how reasonable this uh, historical account is. Of course, we've now got a lot more information and uh, a lot more studies, a lot more history being written and so on. And so actually, uh, we might kind of say, well, Marx is doing this at a very primitive and early level. Uh, what, you know, is this trustworthy? Does it does it does it really does it really match the real history? And when people get into finding out what actually happened, uh, as opposed to Marx's account, which is usually drawn from some second-hand source, uh, the historians, or particularly classical uh, writings, of course. But we know much more about it now, so we don't necessarily have to take this account that he's giving as 
as the account which should be followed. And we don't say, well, just because Marx wrote it, it must be right. We can kind of say, no, I mean, he, he was working with limited information and he attempted to reconstruct things. So, so I'm not inclined to look at this as, as kind of the definitive account uh, by any means. I think it's a, an interesting attempt. Uh, and, but within the interesting attempt, I think there are certain, a couple of methodological uh, arguments being made, which I think are important and, and which might be worthwhile uh, res, res, resurrecting uh, to, to think about our current uh, circumstances. Uh, and, and, and the first, first of these is, is along the lines I've already kind of uh, uh, mentioned, which is that transitions, according to, to Marx's account here, rarely, if ever, uh, accomplish uh, anything uh, without there already being this very solid base in the society, and that therefore one of the ways in which we might consciously transform or we ought to, ought to approach the question of conscious transformation uh, from capitalism to anti-capitalism or to socialism or to communism. One of the things we need to do is to ask the question of what is it that's going on in our own society right now, uh, which in effect is uh, sort of socialism in disguise, if you like, or socialist in, 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 in capitalist clothing or communist in in, in, in capitalist clothing. Because uh, what Marx does here is to suggest that when, when you, you've got something, as I mentioned earlier, something like hoarding going on, and then and that's not consistent with the value theory, but when it, it's taken out and it starts to circulate as money capital, it then becomes consistent with, with the production of the, of the capitalist value theory. Well, we have to think about are there those things which are going on in, in, in society? And of course, frequently in the past, we've looked to technological change and technological ideas as somehow opening the path to possible uh, construction of an alternative. Uh, uh, so there's been a plenty of uh, socialist uh, techno, uh, techno utopianism, if you want to call it that. And, and, and uh, a lot of that then is. Uh, doing exactly this of taking things which exist in the present and trying to reconfigure them around a different different mode of uh, different value theory, uh, different forms of operation. So that's the first point I think which is made here and Marx is, comes back to this uh, very frequently. Uh, the second is that there, there, there are uh, consistent features in here like, which, which uh, which don't disappear over time. For instance, uh, he talks about landed property and the role of landed property, and he talks about family and, and family extended as, as a clan between intermarriage of families. Now, the question of the family also, it seems to me, is not uh, has not disappeared, uh, and. Uh, the same thing applies to questions of the commons. So part of what Marx is talking about are uh, approaches to the commons and, and the different forms which community can take and the different forms in which uh, common property rights can be asserted and, and the commons can be regulated. Um, and again, these are insights which uh, open up possibilities for 
uh, how our own society might want to work. Would we want to reestablish the commons? And if so, what kind of commons would we want to do? This is something which is uh, many uh, radicals right now would uh, want to take up as uh, being, being significant. When we talk about the commune, when we talk about uh, the organization of state power, uh, there, there are many elements uh, in this history which I think are, are significant. And he introduces also the whole kind of question of urbanization and the city, uh, the, the commune that, that was not part of the city and the city that is the commune and the commune uh, and the common commune, he says, and starts to talk about assemblies and uh, the organization of uh, the city. Uh, and the creation of different kinds of totalities. And here, I think, again, methodologically, we might want to pay attention to that, uh, because when he kind of says, you know, we're not just still dealing with, with uh, the totality of capital or the totality of capitalism in a broader kind of sense, what we're also dealing with are smaller totalities which could actually lay the basis for an alternative uh, construction. Uh, and, and, what, and what kinds of totalities would we want to discuss, and, and how would the moments within those totalities be utilized uh, constructively uh, to try to build a, a society that is self-replicating, because obviously we would want it to be self-reproducing and self-replicating, but we wouldn't want it to be necessarily self-replicating of, of, of the social relations, which are you know, characteristic of capital, in other words, is there a way of self-replicating uh, production processes in such a way that you don't self-replicate the social relation between capital and labor? So there are many issues of that kind which uh, come up uh, in here. Uh, and I think that, uh, to me, uh, it's, it, it's, a good, it's a good kind of read. I mean, like I say, it's, it's, it's about all the different uh, things that Marx is aware of in terms of property relations, private property relations, uh, the construction of individualism. Uh, there's a great deal about uh, the, the transformation and the relation to nature, which I think is uh, very useful for us in the, in the current time. Uh, and, and I think a good deal about uh, the question of transformations in productivity and the like. So there is much going on in, in, this passage, in these passages, which I think is really, interesting and I can uh, just uh, take up uh, a, a couple of them uh, but I wanted to concentrate uh, if you like on, 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 on what strikes me as perhaps uh, the most extraordinary passage uh, in, in all of this which is on page 488 and this passage uh, is I think uh, uh, a rather classic uh, uh, Marx, and, and, and I'm, I'm going to read the whole, the whole thing to you. Uh, he says this, when contrasted to the modern world, where production appears as the aim of mankind and wealth as the aim of production, in fact, when the limited bourgeois form is stripped away, what is wealth other than the universality of individual needs, capacities, pleasures, productive forces, etc., created 
through universal exchange. The full development of human mastery over the forces of nature, those of so-called nature as well as of humanity's own nature, the absolute working out of his creative potentialities, with no presupposition other than the previous historic development, which makes this totality of development, i.e. the development of all human powers as such, the end in itself, not as measured on a predetermined yardstick. Where he does not reproduce himself in one specificity, but produces his totality, strives not to remain something he has become, but is in the absolute movement of becoming. In bourgeois economics, and in the epoch of production to which it corresponds, this complete working out of the human content appears as a complete emptying out. This universal objectification as total alienation and the tearing down of all limited, one-sided aims as sacrifice of the human end in itself to an entirely external end. This is why the childish world of antiquity, remember he did that in the first session, introduction. This is why the childish world of antiquity appears on one side as loftier. On the other side, it really is loftier in all matters where closed shapes, forms, and given limits are sought for. The satisfaction from a limited standpoint, while the modern gives no satisfaction, or where it appears satisfied with itself, it is vulgar. Now, this has been preceded by the following observation on 487. He's been talking about, you know, organization of uh, commune and communal action and, and Rome. Uh, and he says that this is the kind of society where great developments can take place here within a specific sphere. The individuals may appear great, but there can be no conception here of a free and full development either of the individual or of the society since such development stands in contradiction to the original relation. Do we never find in antiquity an inquiry into which form of landed property is the most productive, creates the greatest wealth? Wealth does not appear as the aim of production. Although Cato may well investigate which manner of cultivating a field brings the greatest rewards, and Brutus may even lend out his money at the best rates of interest. The question is always, which mode of property creates the best citizens? Wealth appears as an end in itself only among the few commercial peoples, monopolists of the carrying trade, who live in the pores of the ancient world, like the Jews in medieval society. In other words, the objective of social life and the objective of productive activity in that period, in Marx's judgment, and it may, whether it's right or wrong, is an interesting kind of question. But as far as Marx is concerned, the real question was, does this make for good citizens? Wouldn't it be interesting in our own society if we kind of said, the question for us is what kind of economy will create good citizens? Now, I've actually pursued this a little bit, in, in my own way, by saying the question of what kind of city we want to dwell in is really dominated by the question of what kind of people we want to be. So what kind of city building should go on 
which would be consistent with creating good citizens. And that is not answered. That is not addressed. And so the whole kind of question for me about the right to the city was, can there be a movement around creating good citizens and the kind of urbanization that would create good citizens? This seems to me to be the radical posture that Marx is in here. He's saying, all right, once upon a time, they were more interested in good citizens than they were in wealth. But then, what is wealth? Well, under modernity, we have that account of wealth where there's all of these, when you strip it all away, it's universality of human and it has all these positive things, but it ends up being not a complete working out of the human content, but it's a complete emptying out. That is the emptiness. And the pursuit of wealth in capitalist society is very much about the pursuit of that emptiness. It's a nothingness at the heart of what the capitalist enterprise is about. And when we compare that kind of pursuit of wealth with what happened in the childish world of antiquity and why it appeared loftier, in a sense, it was loftier because it was not just taken up with this incredible pursuit of, of wealth. Now, I want to, I mean, to begin with, I find this a remarkable passage. So Marx is, um, language seems to me to be pretty astonishing here, pretty exciting, actually. I mean, he's, he's cut loose. I mean, he does this in the Grunerys, so, you know, he cut loose and he's kind of said, okay, you know, we have this possibility, and in the past they did it this way, and we've done it this other way, but this other way is such as to create a tremendous set of you know, human powers and, and possibilities, but at its center, it's hollow. Compare this with what he said back on page 410, or was it 409, where Marx is talking about the civilizing influence of capital. And I want to put these two passages together and, and ask questions about it. Thus, he says at the bottom of 409, capital creates the bourgeois society and the universal appropriation of nature, as well as the social bond itself by the members of society. Hence, the great civilizing influence of capital, its production of a stage of society comparison to which all earlier ones appear as mere local developments of humanity and as nature idolatry. For the first time, nature becomes purely an object of humankind, purely a matter of utility, ceases to be recognized as a power for itself, and the theoretical discovery of its autonomous laws appears merely as a ruse so as to subjugate it under human needs, whether as an object of consumption or as a means of production. In accord with this tendency, capital drives beyond national barriers and prejudices, as much as beyond nature worship, as well as all traditional confined, complacent, encrusted satisfactions of present needs and reproductions of old ways of life. It is destructive towards all of this, constantly revolutionizes it, tearing down all the barriers which hem in the development of the forces of production, the expansion of needs, the all-sided development of production, 
and the exploitation and exchange of natural and mental forces. Put that passage next to the one uh, we are on 488. And then, and then kind of think, just, just think about what kind of society we live in and, and how Marx is capturing something about the nature of what a capitalist society by definition is. And it's, it's, it's you know, with capitalist society doesn't have an option to be like this or be like that. Well, you know, minor things can shift, obviously. But it doesn't really have an option. This is, Marx is trying to come up with the essence of what capital is about and the essence of what capitalist society is about. And that essence is, it has all these possibilities. It does all of these creative and constructive things at the same time as it also does these destructive things. And the destructive things are, lead, if you like, to this pursuit of wealth. And the only indicator of, you know, the top indicator is, is wealth, and it's wealth, wealth, wealth. Which translates, of course, my language, of course, into the growth, 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 accumulation, accumulation, accumulation. And at the heart of that, there, there, there ends up, not only does it, is it producing alienation, left, right, center, it's also, at the end, hollow that it produces not, as he says, the complete working out of the human content, the complete exploration of all that we're capable of doing as a species. Instead of that, it's universal objectification, it's total alienation, and the tearing down of all limited one-sided aims, the sacrifice of the human end in itself to an entirely external end. This is why it is an emptying out. And I think it's that emptying out which, which, which starts to become significant. Now, this also goes back, if you go to the next page of 489, where Marx starts to say that there's, there are problems with this kind of idea he put out on 410, which is about the domination of, of nature thesis and the subjugation of nature, where, where Marx actually challenges himself by saying it is not the unity of living and active humanity with the natural inorganic conditions of their metabolic exchange with nature, and hence their appropriation of nature, which requires explanation or is the result of a historic process, but rather the separation between these inorganic conditions of human existence and this active existence, a separation which is completely posited only in the relation of wage, labor, and capital. Now, earlier in his discussion of the commune, he's talked about the specific way in which earlier societies uh, actually saw themselves as integral with the earth in itself. Uh, and on 474, he says, the earth in itself, regardless of the obstacles it may place in the way of working it, really appropriating it, offers no resistance to attempts to relate it to it as the inorganic nature of the living individual, as his workshop, as the means and object of labor and the means of life for the subject. 
that the form of the commune and the community was a form in which the integration of self into nature through relation to the land was foundational. And so he described some of that in these earlier societies, 472, 473, in which the question which needs to be posed, which he's posing here is, how come we started to see ourselves as separate from nature? And that's what modernity did. And he's described this modernity on this earlier thing as this is what it does. And it is constructive to be able to do that, but how do we recuperate the integration with nature, which is something which he starts to argue about from 489 uh, to 90. As he says on 490, the natural conditions of existence to, to which he relates as to his own inorganic body are themselves double. First, of a subjective, and second, of an objective nature. He finds himself a member of a family, clan, tribe, etc., which then, in a historic process of intermixture and antithesis with others, takes on a different shape. And as such a member, he relates to a specific nature, say here, till still earth, land, soil, as his own inorganic being. So Marx is trying to reintegrate on the basis of historical inquiry, trying to reintegrate some meaning into contemporary world by saying that we have to view nature as part of our own inorganic being. It is not something outside of us. It is not something to be dominated. So this earlier argument on 410 and the argument on 488 and, and, and onwards is the creation by Marx of some very, very broad sweeping arguments about relations to nature and about meaning and about awareness and consciousness. And I think that rather than try to reduce all of this argument that Marx is making to a set of propositions about, well, this is what the Germanic form was like, this is what the Roman form was like, this was what, you know, I mean, which we can, we can describe and use, use his descriptions. Rather than do that, I think that we have to actually try to incorporate the perspective. Because what is about so, is so remarkable about Grundrisse as a book, as, as a written document, is that precisely that it does these interrogations, these minutiae territoriae, these calculations which go on and on and on. But then there come these passages which are blinding insights into how to understand what a capitalist society is about and how to understand why it is so empty at its core and why it can never absolutely overcome that and why it cannot bear the idea that somehow or other nature is an organic body and that therefore there is no separation between us and, and nature and that kind of false separation is part and parcel of some of the dangers that we now face and how do we actually then talk about not only the, the appropriation uh, of 
in the world around us without actually recognizing that there is some element of property rights involved. Not property rights in the sense of private property rights as it's legally described, but that in appropriating the natural world around us and appropriating its forces and working with it and all these kinds of things, we are transforming it. We are transformative agents. And these, these transformations are then very significant. And I think some of the insights that come out of this uh, section on the different modes of production. I mean, he talks about uh, colonization. He talks about wars of conquest. He talks about slavery. Um, but he also talks about the destruction of preceding conditions, uh, the dissolution of preceding relations. So when money comes in, for example, it dissolves many of the social relations. So part of what we're looking at here is the possibility of reconstructing relation, uh, relationality to nature, social relations, and also at the same time becoming aware and becoming conscious of the ways in which labor is actually constructing a capitalist class which dominates it. Labor is constructing an instrument of its own domination. And that therefore, one of the ways in which to get out of this is to, to, to recognize, have consciousness of this, and then set about this, but not set about it in that kind of modernistic kind of way. If, uh, uh, I, I wish very much, for example, that uh, uh, the Soviet Union had taken more notice of uh, this argument about the nature as our organic body instead of uh, uh, taking a sort of domination of the nature thesis. Um, and so there's, there's much in this, in this section, and I, I may come back to it. Uh, and, and there are actually, actually um, some, some interesting sidebars on it. For example, Marx suggests that there are many different modes of production which uh, have preceded capital uh, and at a certain point uh, starts to talk, uh, not very knowledgeably, but, but to, to, to embrace anyway the idea that there might be a distinctive Asiatic mode of production. And there's a particularly long history of what happened with uh, the discussion about the uh, uh, Asiatic mode of production, which I can get into if you like. And in fact, it's a very, very controversial kind of question and with very serious uh, uh, consequences politically. Um, for, for, for example, if the, class, if the dominant class relation in the Asiatic mode of production, if there's a relationship with the state apparatus, uh, then the struggle against capital should take uh, secondary, uh, or the struggle against feudalism or against capital should take second place to the struggle against the state. Uh, now, there was a big argument in the Comintern, and Stalin also got into the argument and basically said, the Chinese Communist Party, who's the enemy? Is it the state? Is it the, the, the landlord class? Since there was no industrial capitalist class, that was basically the choice. 
Stalin said basically it's the landlord class, not the state. So that then led to, a, if you like, a, a form of communism which was state-oriented and led many people to think that uh, the state orientation of uh, uh, classical communism was actually embracing the enemy, uh, the true enemy, and uh, under the Asiatic mode of production uh, theory. So the Asiatic mode of production is an interesting kind of, kind of question. Um, so out of this comes, I think, uh, an argument that uh, the dissolution of uh, the, the older modes of production means that modes of production can be dissolved by particular processes and that therefore there is the opportunity for us to dissolve the capitalist mode of production. And Marx says on uh, 506, it goes without saying and shows itself if we go more deeply into the historical epoch under discussion here, that in truth, the period of the dissolution of the earlier modes of production and modes of workers' relation to the objective conditions of labor is at the same time a period in which monetary wealth on the one side has already developed to a great extent, to a certain extent, and on the other side grows and expands rapidly through the same circumstances as accelerate the above dissolution. So it's the monetization the whole society which becomes becomes critical it is itself one of the agencies of that dissolution or at the same time that dissolution is the condition of its transformation into capital but the mere presence of monetary wealth and even the achievement of a kind of supremacy on its part is in no way sufficient for this dissolution into capital to happen or else ancient Rome, Byzantium, etc., would have ended their history with free labor and capital, or rather begun a new history. There too, the dissolution of the old property relations was bound up with development of monetary wealth, of trade, etc. But instead of leading to industry, this dissolution led, in fact, to the supremacy of the countryside over the city. The original formation of capital does not happen, as it sometimes imagined, with capital heaping up necessaries of knife and instruments of labor and raw materials. In short, the objective conditions of labor, which have already been unbound from the soil and animated by human labor. Capital does not create the objective conditions of labor. Rather, its original formation is that, through the historic process of the dissolution of the old mode of production, value existing as money wealth is enabled on one side to buy the objective conditions of labor on the other side to exchange money for the living labor of the workers who have been set free. All these moments are present. Their divorce is itself a historic process, a process of dissolution, and it is the latter which enables money to transform itself into capital. I think this is, again, an, an, in, an interesting argument, because basically what it's saying is that the origins of capital was not, you can't, sort of simply see it as a, as a linear thing. It's a coming together, it's a co-evolution, a, a co-concordance of multiple forces, which, which and, and when we unpin them, we see there's not a single bullet explanation of the rise of capital. Uh, there are in fact multiple forces which open up the possibility here, and monetization does, 
the, the rise of science and, and technology does, the rise of certain kinds of productive apparatuses do, all of these create possibilities. And it's only when all of those possibilities come together, uh, as Marx put it in the introduction to the Grundrisse, uh, multiple uh, uh, tendencies, uh, different, uh, multiple different tendencies converge uh, in, into, into making a, a catalytic moment of, of shift. And that is where a revolution comes in, and that's where the revolution, uh, and that's where the revolution really, really uh, takes, takes hand. So let me now stop here and that and say, well, okay, next time we're going to read the 516 to 594. Uh, and, uh, but there are some issues here, and particularly in this last part on, on the history that uh, people may like to ask questions about or may like to discuss. Uh, but I haven't gone into it, I've gone over it in great detail. It's fairly you know, clear in its own right anyway, so you don't need, need to explain it. But I think this whole kind of question of consciousness, awareness, and the like is uh, rather very significant uh, for the way Marx is approaching this. Okay, so let's see what kind of questions may have lined up. And, uh... Please go ahead. Yes, can you hear David? Yeah, yes. Oh, great. Um, well, there's so much to unpack on this one. Um, I, I would have like a lot of questions on it, but I'm going to refer mostly to, the, to this last part uh, where you, you were talking about these uh, multiple set of events that somehow coalesce you know, through different sets of time and different conditions that um, give, give rise to a revolution. Right, and it reminds me also a bit of of Brodel's uh, historical recount of capital, uh, where he's trying to trace uh, the origins of capital and how capital developed. And one of the very clear things on this is that, well, he argues too, is that um, that there were so many contradictions happening. Right, there were so many collapses of different historical collapses. You know, from the Catholic Church collapsing with the Constantinople Empire collapsing from um, different inventions of technologies, uh, like uh, from uh, the, the sort of the, the discovery, I'm putting quote unquote, of course it's not discovery, but the rise of, um, the discovery of the Europeans of new territories. I mean, so we can uh, uh, argue that through a period of a few centuries or one or two centuries, there were many things that came together in order to prioritize the coming of capital or capitalism as such, right? Um, the, the question comes, I, and this is what we get normally with all, a lot of students today, I mean that even though we should have that consciousness that is uh, a, a series of moments that come together through time and so forth, there's still a very strong desire for instant revolution, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and that is something that it's always very hard for me to uh, recount um, when you're trying to bring um, Marxist theories, right? Because it tends to happen, especially in younger generations or generations that are not trained so much in Marxism, that they want like the instant revolution, reminds me a lot of South American governments, where they just want like fast transformation. I, I wonder if you could comment a bit on that. 
Yeah, well, I think Marx's argument here that uh, this process is a very slow process. There's not one single path that can be taken. Uh, but like any process, there can be critical moments. Uh, the, the, the problem is when the critical moments are taken to be the revolution, when I think that what Marx would argue is that, yes, the critical moments are the critical moments, uh, you know, Paris Commune or, or 1848 or you know, French Revolution or Russian Revolution. Uh, these are critical moments, but if the critical moment is not embedded uh, in a radical transformation of, for example, what Marx is arguing for here is a different understanding of the relation to nature, uh, a, a movement away from thinking of uh, wealth as the only, um, and in particularly monetary wealth, as being uh, the only, you know, the predominant value uh, for which uh, in both individuals and states and uh, all of the institutional forms of a capitalist society strive. So, uh, I so I think it is very important, but you know, really important to emphasize that that uh, a particular moment, like a Russian Revolution or something like that, doesn't end up going well or going anywhere without a, a clear understanding of the many different uh, facets of the social order that need to be transformed. Um, and what, what, what sticks out to me in his historical account is that, it, you know, we often um, take one of these sayings of Marx and say the productive forces change history. But actually what Marx is most interested in is the social relations. And, and, and in, in particular also beyond the social relations, the relation to nature. That's, those are the two elements that, that, that he critically uh, focuses upon. And, and at the same time as he does see certain forces which are undermining of, of traditional values, but which uh, in themselves are, are, are empty of, of value, money being, being the big one uh, of, of that. So I, 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 I think we should, we, should, we should teach revolutionary theory more in this light and, and make it very clear that, yes, okay, it's good to go to the barricades and maybe we'll do something for the barricades, but uh, if we don't take care of the social relations and we're not actually reorganizing uh, the the, the, the core, the, the, the center uh, of uh, what it is. I mean, I, I love this stuff that he just did about, about good citizenship. It's interesting that the society is organized around that principle rather than the accumulation of wealth and power. And I, so I think that those, those are the sorts of things we should be, we should be looking at. I, so, so I think, you know, again, there's a certain utopianism in this text, which is, of course, of course Marx is supposedly uh, antagonistic to utopianism. But at the same time, uh, there is, I think, hidden in here a theory of revolutionary transformation, which uh, uh, needs to be better worked out. And I have to say, uh, you know, reading over it this time, I was thinking to myself, is one of the things I haven't done is to actually think through the kind of question of the theory of revolutionary transformation uh, using some of the insights that come from uh, from the Grundry, sir, and I think that's uh, something that uh, uh, you can work on and everybody can work on and maybe the whole Grundrisse class can work on it uh, since uh, 
we're not going to be allowed to go anywhere for a bit. We can sit at home and actually uh, plot, plot the revolution. Okay, we have another question. Um, it says, could you please explain the phrase from the bottom of page 449, which reads, if it is therefore a law of capital in general that in order to realize itself, it must posit itself, itself doubly, it must realize itself in this double form, then the capital of a particular nation, which represents capital par excellence, in antithesis to another, Will have to lend itself out to a third nation in order to be able to realize itself. Yes, um, I think that this is a little obscure, so I'm not going to give you the definitive interpretation of this. Uh, but um, when when the capitalist when the capitalist comes to the end of the production process and sells the commodity in the market, they then have money. Now, there are two ways in which that money can be used. You can either take the money and bring it back and expand your production. Or you can say, I'm just going to hold on to the money or I'm going to lend it out to somebody else. So a capitalist always has a choice as to whether to continue to produce going through this production process or just taking the money and lending it out to somebody else or you know, putting it in a bank or something of that sort. So what this, what this means is that two things are going on as in, in the production process. And this is where you get into what Marx is talking about with the theory of interest-bearing capital. That part of what the, the, the capitalist has is money power, and they can use that money power any way they like. They can lend it out to somebody else, or they can use it in production. So they have that choice. The other part of what they do in terms of production is to, is to actually engage in the production process and to create value through production. So this is the double character of what a capitalist does. And uh, that, that double character can lead uh, capitalists to uh, withdraw from production and just, just simply say, all right, I'm just going to take the monetary part. So there, there are two activities uh, or two rates of return which exist within the produ production enterprise. One is a return uh, to, in effect, the interest on the money which the capital has, and the other is the actual production. I don't know if this, this is explaining it very well. It's a rather complicated kind of thing, but in a, in a way, uh, the, 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 the person engaging splits into two personas and says, well, am I just going to work on this as a money capitalist or am I going to work on this as a production capitalist? And, and, and uh, the way Marx initially sets it up is, well, they're, they're unified. But if a production process 
is, is run by, by an industrialist on borrowed money, then the industrialist would have to pay interest on that borrowed money. So at the end of the production sequence, part of the, the value which the, the industrial capitalist would get would go off to the banker to pay off the loan. But then Marx kind of says, well, if you don't take out a loan, the capitalist can actually become a double personality. That is part money capitalist, part industrial capitalist. And it's that double meaning. And then he's got here is kind of say, well, how do you preserve your capital? Well, one of the ways you may loan it out to Argentina or a third nation in order to realize itself. That is, uh, the mon uh, uh, at the end of the sequence, you've got, uh, you've got money and you can either lend it out to somebody else and get interest on it, or you can plow it back into expansion of production. And I think that's what he's, what's being gotten, gotten at here, which, which is what Ricardo is, uh, is hinting at. So when you introduce finance and the circulation of interest-bearing capital into the picture, uh, this is the, this, this is this is what happens. We have one other question uh, asking: In what way is Marxist theory also anthropocentrism? Uh, well, I, yeah, I think it's anthropocentric. Uh, in the following, I mean, I don't see, I personally don't see how you can ever make an argument that's not anthropocentric. I mean, I mean, you can imagine, you know, what the you know, thinking like a mountain or thinking like a river or something of that kind uh, might be a useful exercise, but it's still a human being who's doing the thinking. Uh, and so, so I, I mean, I think the, the, the critique here would be uh, that, that Marx, is talk, Marx is talking about a society that is anthropocentric, clearly so. He's talking earlier about some of these societies which insofar as they saw themselves as part of the land, and didn't, didn't, didn't separate themselves from nature in the way that tended to happen after uh, the Enlightenment and Descartes and all of that. Um, so, so I think that there are degrees of anthropocentrism and you could uh, certainly argue that uh, the productivist uh, view of many Marxists of what Marx is saying is, is very anthropocentric. But I think that these passages here where he's saying, well, we have this uh, nature is our or, or an organic body and that therefore uh, this idea that my body is separate from that world is, is, is erroneous uh, is it seems to me uh, not, not, not uh, the, the worst kind of anthropocentrism you could, uh, you could have. No, okay, so we're there. So, um, okay, we will next time take up the, uh, the 516 to 594.